And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? Hello, it's Garth Hewitt, and you're listening to Flame Radio, and I'm going to talk about my new book and CD. Both are called Against the Grain. My name is John Cheek, and I find myself at a rather chilly and very wet Greenbelt Festival in Northamptonshire. And our special guest today is one of the legends of Christian popular music, I think it's fair to say. Our guest is Garth Hewitt. Garth, welcome to Flame Radio. Can you please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, please? Well, thank you very much, and it's very good to be with you and to be talking to you. I'm a singer and songwriter, a priest, an activist, a writer, and all of these things come together in a ministry which I've been doing now for, let's say, very many years. (laughs) And during this time, I've recorded over 40 albums, My PA told me the other day I'd written over 650 songs, and um, I was impressed to hear that. And also, I've been doing work in different churches. I was for 15 years what's called a guild vicar in a church in the city of London, where we had the charity that I founded called the Amos Trust was based and now that charity has moved on to a church nearby called St. Clement's Eastcheap. So I've had different roles, but all the time, the thing that's common in the middle of it all has been the music, the storytelling, the writing songs, and I have a strong commitment to justice and issues of justice. I've been inspired by hearing Martin Luther King when I was a teenager, and I always think the message is incomplete if I'm not reflecting that aspect of the character of God, of justice, and also the importance of loving your neighbor as yourself. And I hope in what I write, in what I sing, and in the demonstrations and so on that I go to, I am trying to affirm the value of each human being as made in the image of God. And we will touch upon a number of these themes during the course of this interview. Now, Garth, I'm going to take you right back to the beginning. And although, I guess, over the years, you've had a little bit of an image of being somebody who is very political, quite outspoken, almost prophetic, I would say, you were almost born into the establishment, I would argue. Can you tell us a little bit about your birth and your upbringing and and your schooling, please? (laughs) You know, this is very interesting because, yes, my father was a vicar at the time I arrived on the scene. And um, my parents sent me to a private school where I had to board. I wasn't very keen on that. You know, I found that difficult. But the story starts earlier because my father was brought up in Newcastle and he was in a gang. He was illiterate. He had sold papers on the streets during the time of the Depression. But at this point, the gang came into a meeting that was being held to break it up, I think, in some way. And something happened to him, and he became a Christian that night. And here was this man who had no education, but he was very bright. And so he started to study English, first of all, to be able to read and write and so on. And then in the later years, he taught himself Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews. He also used to cycle around the mining villages. He became a miner, which was good because he had a job. I mean, this is the time of the Jarrow March and so on. And he would cycle around these villages and preach the gospel. He had a concertina with him and he would sing. My name is Johnny McIntyre And the bands don't even have a fire So the wife says, Johnny, go to London town And if they don't give us half a chance don't even give us a second glance Then Geordie with my blessings burn them down Come on, follow the Geordie boys Then fill your heart with joy They're marching for their freedom now Come on, follow the Geordie lands They make your heart feel glad Singing now, yes, now is the hour. 
right And the wife says, Jody, go to London town And if they don't give us a couple of bob Won't even give you a decent job Then Jody, with my blessings, burn them down You know, we didn't know much about this. We discovered it after he had died and got the whole story of someone who became a Christian through his ministry at that time. And I realized, and I thought back to conversations I'd had with my dad, he saw education as crucial. And they sacrificed quite a bit to make sure. I got a scholarship as well because it was a school for the sons of clergy. So I went there and he felt that what he wanted was I would have the best education. And just before he died, I got into Durham University. And he was thrilled, absolutely thrilled, because there I was returning to his part of the world, but this time going to university, the privilege and the opportunity that he never had. I wasn't aware of all this at that time until just after he had died, and I heard this other story. Goodness. But it was helpful to know it because it helped to explain why I'm always keen, and I say to our kids, look, this is where we've come from, so let's be educated, let's be committed to that, and also let's help the poor and the needy. You know, we have a responsibility because of the journey that he made. We must live that out in practical ways. So that remains an inspiration. I mentioned particularly my father. My mother was a huge influence too, but in a very different and gentle sort of way. So I'm grateful for that background. It was a Christian home to the extent that when people used to say to me, you must become a Christian, I was puzzled. What? I've been introduced to God (laughs) at a very young age. It seemed to me that was perfectly natural. And I think that was a privilege to grow up in that kind of context. Now, the process of making that my own went on over a long period of time, but culminated in a very significant way in going up to St. Paul's Cathedral and hearing Martin Luther King preach on his way to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize. And at that stage, I was 16 or 17. No one would come with me. I went on my own. But I'd seen him on the television. I'd seen him kneel down on the bridge at Selma, And they're shooting the water cannon at him. They're setting dogs on him. And he's praying in the street. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You'd imagine it. You know, you're a teenager looking at that. I wouldn't do that publicly, let alone with all that going on around me. And I thought, I have to see this guy. There had been a man that came and preached at our school chapel from America. He was doing a sabbatical over here. And uh, he had gone down as a freedom rider and had marched with Martin Luther King. So that made me more aware and thinking, this is very, very interesting. So that influenced me very strongly. And I look back on uh, my family, my past, that whole journey. At the time, you're just trying to cope with life in whatever way. Now I look back and I see a thread, I see a pattern, and I see how it fits into the rest of of my life, really. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, J.R. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak 
to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. moment in 1966 Garth with Martin Luther King which you talk about you allude to at the start of your book Against the Grain absolutely fascinated me when I first read it a few months ago and you don't go into that much detail but to actually have heard Martin Luther King speak in public to me is an awesome thing can you tell us a little bit more now about that night of well almost epiphany in your life please In fact, it was an afternoon in St. Paul's. You know, there are two sides, really, to Martin Luther King. The side that we're familiar with from the television. He's an extraordinary orator. But he was a preacher. He was familiar with the fact that he could preach in the style of a black church in the States. But he knew at St. Paul's that might not be the style. So he did a quieter sermon and a very thoughtful sermon. And he went to the book of Revelation and he talked about the new Jerusalem that God was building. And he said, the interesting thing is the sides of the city would be even. And he talked about the breadth and the height and the depth would be even. And if you want a whole Christian life, you need to make sure that you love God. And uh, he talked about God's love for the world, for God so loved the world. And then he talked about having yourself in the right perspective. Love yourself. You're told to love your neighbor as yourself. So love yourself, but in the right perspective, in the right balance. And then he said, of course, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And the commitment to justice, the commitment to social justice and action, all of that came out in that section. I see it as a circle. And I think before I'd heard a lot about the character of God, I don't think I'd quite heard people talking about loving yourself in exactly that way. I found that helpful. I'd heard you should love your neighbor as yourself. But now I was hearing it 
and he was giving examples of what was going on when your neighbour is being abused because they're the wrong colour. So loving your neighbour here is political. You need action. That's all part of the gospel. All of this is part of the gospel. I walked down the hill. I was hungry and um, from St Paul's went down to the only... In those days, there weren't all the same fast food chains, but there was a little shop <laughs> selling hamburgers down the road. And um, I was there for a little while, and then I came. I said, I wonder if they're still around. I wandered up the road, and they were standing there mucking around. You know what I mean? There's, there's him. There's Jesse Jackson. There's his wife, Coretta Scott King. Ralph Abernathy, I think, is there. Andrew Young, who became the mayor down in Atlanta, I think. Yeah. And I just looked, because I'd seen these faces. And what's more, they were having fun. I like that. It kind of affirmed the humanity. And when I think back, of course, with a lot of them, especially Martin Luther King, he's very young. In my terms today, he's very young. <laughs> he was very bright, very bright. I'm not sure we always remember that. This was someone who was highly educated and highly skilled. So I stood there just watching. I don't know what they thought of this young lad just doing that. But, you know, I'd some, sometimes you learn lessons just by watching and seeing and it encouraged me and garth that was a moment of epiphany for you it was almost as if the final piece of the jigsaw was slotted into place that here was a whole gospel the full gospel on every level that's a really helpful way to put it the last piece of the jigsaw fitting into place you know for many people and much of the gospel i was hearing it was privatized it's sort of me and Jesus, that kind of son. And this was saying, hang on, this is a bigger story than you realized. This is a big God. This brings big responsibilities and challenges. And uh, also, this gospel can change the world. And that's what I was hearing. And I'm so grateful for this because when you're a creative person and you're writing songs, poems, prayers, you need to remember that we are not just dealing with something narrow and small. It's big. Big issues, big challenges, big responsibility about how we live. And therefore, be as creative as you can be. Open it up and hopefully encourage and open people up to the deep truths of the gospel to show love in action and uh, to bring some hope and challenge and change to a world that can be very easily caught up with the selfish actions of things like war and aggression and racism. And there's Jesus who challenges all of that. Garth, in the immediate few years to come after that, you would go on the ordination process within the Church of England. You would be eventually ordained by the institution. Do you think you were being ordained not just to the priestly nature, but also to the prophetic as well? That's very interesting because one of the things that the Anglican Church does, and not just the Anglican, I think it's the Methodists, the United Reformed Churches, and maybe many others, they have something called the Five Marks of Mission. They're straightforward things like choosing people to Jesus, discipleship, loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the third one. Fourth one is about dealing with systemic injustice. It's about rejecting violence and bringing peace. Fifth one is all about ecological issues and uh, looking after God's world. And I think in terms of that encounter with Martin Luther King, I think I received a challenge and a sense of vocation to look more closely at the fourth one and to think about the challenge of addressing systemic injustice where it occurs. And it occurs, you know, in our own society. It occurs obviously everywhere. But it's easy to think the gospel isn't relevant to this. But when you think of Martin Luther King, he would always use words often from the prophets like Isaiah or Amos. And he's talking about let justice fall down like rivers and um, right living like an overflowing stream. He'd quote Isaiah about the bring down the mountains, mountains of injustice, lift up the valleys so that people without hope are lifted up to hope lovely imagery from the bible but from the prophets of the bible and uh, he obviously had understood through the suffering of his community the prophetic call he should have and i felt there have been times when in what i do an aspect of it must be not being frightened to speak out it seems to me don't hide those things i think probably as as priests you know even if you were an ordinary parish priest that's a pastoral role, but it's not without a prophetic aspect. And there are times when you must take up that prophetic. 
I had opportunity, extraordinary opportunities actually. I was taken around the world to different situations, places of hunger, places of war, places of oppression. I'd seen those, therefore you must speak about them. You have to be a witness to what you've seen. And so I started to reflect that in my songs. And that came more and more a part of what I was doing in the songs. Until around probably the time, if I look at my albums around 1980, I see that they're beginning to focus more and more on justice issues. It was there, but you can see me reaching for things before that, and now I'm speaking very much about some of the tangible scenes that I'd visited, whether it was in countries like Haiti or India, Africa. I was given the opportunity, invited to various places by relief and development agencies and also by churches. And so I felt, eh, storytelling time, you know, he should be there in the songs. You mentioned round about 1980, and round about that time you were a very big name on the Christian music scene, as it were. I think you'd appeared on TV once or twice. You're also working a lot with Cliff Richard. The possibility of chart success in the UK was there. Did that sort of almost juxtapose how you were actually feeling with regards to what you were experiencing, what you were witnessing, and what you were writing about? Or did, at the time, mixing with the likes of Cliff, was that good fun? It was good fun. He's a very nice person. Also, someone who is such a good musician and uh, has recorded so much, he gave me the opportunity to learn a lot through being with him in the studio. It was good fun. He took me to all sorts of situations and I I met people that I wouldn't normally have met and so on. So, great learning experience. He produced an album for me called Did He Jump or Was He Pushed? He'd sung on my previous album called I'm Grateful. But this time he produced it. That's when I was with EMI and I remember the posters for the album were over all the London buses and so on. I remember once picking my kids up from school and a bus goes past and I'm on the front of the bus. (laughs) This is absolutely bizarre. But Jill and I, my wife Jill, felt it began to get a little bit of attention. Not because of working with Cliff or anything like that. He was utterly with me on all of what I was doing. But the record company would say, we'll send a limo around to your house to pick you up. And you must dress like a star. And then they said, well, I think we should change your name. And Jill said, so that was the point. She thought, no, no, this is going haywire, you know. And she was right. It would have been too much of a pressure for the family. But also, it made me think, EMI, they were saying, well, some of these songs got a Christian message there, that's a bit much. And I thought, oh, okay. But I think that my vocation is to reflect those aspects that reflect a Christian viewpoint, that reflect justice and so on. So I think I began to sense that there was a different way that I would go that must respond to the call and the fact that I was ordained was important in helping me on that. I was never against someone doing well in pop or rock or whatever, or against people having hits or anything. I wouldn't have been against having a hit. But I felt this isn't the priority. 
I don't think music should only be judged in terms of commercial success. Doesn't music have a value in itself? Of course it does. So I'm going around singing in churches and schools and colleges. That's got a validity in itself, in the poems, in the art, in the creativity. So I felt commercial pressure was in some ways unhelpful. I tried writing all sorts of different songs. I had a lot of fun with it. I went to a little rock and roll label. It was the time when EMI ran into some problems, and the section of EMI I was with, actually, they all got laid off. This this was a very serious time for the music business. The guy who had signed me up, he lost his job, too. A very lovely guy called Phil Lloyd, and uh, his encounter during this time was that he became a Christian, and uh, this was all extraordinary, painful, but also moments of great hope in the middle of it all. So I signed with one or two other different labels to do singles, but then I signed with a little rock and roll label I rather liked, and uh, I think they were called Magnum Force. It's like a Dirty Harry film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they had a, another label as well, like called Blue Horizon. It was the sort of whole punk era, and they said, um, can you do something, you know, that's a bit that way inclined? And so I recorded a couple of songs in my alter ego, in another voice. It was very punkish, and one of them was called Number One Hit, and it was really being very cynical about this obsession with hits, as if that was the only way to go. And the record company said, well, we'll put this out. But they then ran into financial trouble as well. This was a difficult time. So we never did put it out, though you can find it on my webpage now, where you can find tucked away this couple of songs done with this different voice, let's say. It was a hysterical experiment. I enjoyed all the opportunity of, of trying different styles, different music. But vocation kept coming back, coming back. And I found I was writing songs that spoke in a different way. So I'd had that fun with writing things like that, and there was one or two singles I had out. But I didn't particularly like them. I sensed there was somewhere else to go. So when I got to the next album, it was called Under the Influence. In the album, quite a range of songs, but one or two of them were starting to speak particularly to contexts of poverty, hunger, those who get forgotten. One of the songs was called Record of the Week. And the DJ, Mike Reed, said to me, you know, on that album, the song Record of the Week, he said, that's where I hear your voice being at home. That's where you're singing the thing with the most meaning. And I found that really helpful. Why am I feeling at home when I'm singing? What's going on? And I think the answer is because that was the emphasis I should have. It was nice that he said that. It clarified something. So I kept moving in that direction. Garth, just very quickly, before we then move on to perhaps maybe the next chapter, I'm aware that on Flame Radio we do have a lot of listeners who are Cliff Richard fans. Are there any sort of fun moments that you can remember with Cliff, any anecdotes? We're recording together quite close to Oxford Street. He's taking me out for lunch every day. And I thought, let's not take that for granted. So I said, I'll, I'll take you out today. And McDonald's was pretty new at this time in Britain. And I said to me, have you ever been to McDonald's? He said, no. So I said, well, let's go to McDonald's. So we go there. <laughs> I've been working in a studio with him. You forget certain things. Oxford Street is full of international community. In McDonald's, but there were people from all over the world. They all recognized him, of course. And you can forget that thing. So after a bit, I realized we can't stay here. So he grabs his French fries and we do a runner. <laughs> We're paid. He's very good with people because some people wouldn't be, you know, in that situation. But I realized this wasn't actually a terrific idea to have taken him there. But it was very nice and a nice memory. I have a lot of very good memories of working with him. And um, I have been with him just recently and it was lovely to reminisce about some of those days and he's been through some very hard times when i was with him just recently it was just after he got the good news of winning his case and he was very relaxed he'd been dragged through something which emotionally had been very very painful i thought yeah he is suddenly starting to relax again after a terrible time but i'm grateful when i look back to those days where i had the privilege the first reason i involved him he talked to me about he said i'm a frustrated backing vocalist 
<laughs> I, thought, I thought, well, frustrate no more. You can come and do some backing vocals. And that was on the album I'm Grateful. Then we went on to do Diddy Jump. Garth, we've jumped together a fair few years in your life from that moment with Martin Luther King. You went on to get married, have a family, get ordained in the Church of England. Yet you've got this growing sense of vocation. You've steered away from possible pop success towards something with a much more prophetic edge. And as you've alluded to, in the 80s, your material began to take on much more of that prophetic edge, influenced obviously by your travels abroad and your experiences amongst people in extreme poverty and sometimes facing great oppression and persecution. Maybe a couple of memories where you really did see some shocking things that really did shape your future career, your future lyrical concerns. I was taken by the Relief and Development Agency Tear Fund. I was a friend of the director called George Hoffman, and we went to the same church, and he said, oh, I'd like to take you out to visit some of our projects where we're working in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. I'd never been out of Europe before, so this was a very big trip for me. We were in Port-au-Prince on the first night. I had expected to see poverty on the trip. What surprised me was the quantity of it that everybody is living at this level. In other words, it brought home to me the reality of the lives of so many people in our world, particularly at that time and in that place, a place of fascinating history as the slaves had fought for their freedom against the colonial powers. It's amazing history, but economically they were strangled by what was going on in terms of poverty. And I began to see how one could say the ordinary people of the world are living what they have to live with. And so I began to reflect that in the songs I was writing and in the other journeys that I then was doing. Soon after Haiti, I was in India, and that was a trip where I had the opportunity to even meet with Mother Teresa, who was working down in Calcutta. I'd used some words of hers for a song of mine and called Walk in His Shoes. I'd got permission to do that, so I thought I would play the song to her. But before we got there, the, the sisters had taken a vow of silence. There was a day of silence. But I could talk with Mother Teresa, so I explained this as I was going to sing you the song. And for a moment, she kind of hesitates as if she's going to break this vow and let them hear the song. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm actually tempting Mother Teresa to break this vow. But she said, no, we won't do it. So I left her a cassette with the song on. And <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask you, Garth, you've described what it was like to be in the close company of Martin Luther King and what he was like. You're in the close company of Mother Teresa. For that short period of time, what was she like? She was a very bright person. I mean, bright and up. In fact, she was talking about the way that when they took people on, they didn't want people who were struggling with depression, let's say. She said, the people here are so crushed in our streets and, and everything. We don't want someone who's coming here with their depression or whatever. We want people of hope, people who can lift these forgotten community up to dignity. And I found those words helpful. And I remember saying, as I came out from being there, I said, I've, I've got an idea for a song called Road to Freedom. And it became an album title for me. And I'm talking about the journey, the whole journey in India. But if you listen to the chorus, you find me talk about dignity. Dignity for the poor and for the forgotten. 
and that came from listening to what Mother Teresa was saying. You know, when we walked downstairs afterwards as we were going out, and I was very moved by meeting her, a very moving person, I felt. And the guy next to me, the local Indian partner who we'd visited, was laughing. I said, oh, why are you laughing? He said, you gave her a cassette. Oh, I said, yeah. He said, she will give it away by the end of the day. And if you've got a cassette player, well, he, she won't have. She'll have given it away. She gives everything away. I forgot what they said exactly. When she died, all she had was one or two very small things because she gave away everything. And that was a kind of lesson, too. That her faith was committed to giving things to other people. So, I don't know, that cassette was not found at the time she died. <laughs>
Garth increasingly, even though you're mixing with all sorts of people, both in the music world and wider. Instead, you're being drawn to other places, places of oppression, places of poverty, places of persecution, and particularly the Middle East. Can you please describe the first time when you went to Israel stroke Palestine? I'll describe it that way. For me, that journey was a huge eye-opener. We're there in the Holy Land, as we commonly call it. And I had just started to learn a little bit through reading about Palestine and the Palestinians. And yet I'd been very ignorant before that. So I'd written one song, and then I was invited to go there, and I was the guest of the Anglican Bishop of Jerusalem. And I was taken around to see the Palestinian community through the West Bank, through Gaza, and living inside the state of Israel, the 1948 state. And I saw this huge imbalance between the two societies, between Israel and Palestine, I saw the use of military weapons to control them. Now, this was before all the walls being built and so on. When I was in Gaza, I'm going to a hospital supported by the Anglican Church in Jerusalem. And as we go in, Israeli soldiers are shooting. Something was happening in a square beside the hospital, and the wounded are being rushed in beside us. And I recognized that the situation for people, I went and talked with people who had been wounded, not on that occasion, but previously, in the hospital wards to get their story. What's happened to you? And I got told stories. One of them I put in a song about a young woman who said, well, I heard the soldiers firing. My little brother was playing outside. So I ran outside to try and get him and I was shot in the leg. And We see this at the moment in Gaza, and it's shocking. This is 89, but we're still seeing it. And there's something about the world doesn't value the Palestinians. They're treated in a very racist way. And I learned on that trip that we have to tell the story of a community who had no say in their land being taken. It was a colonial exercise in that sense. These were not people who were allowed to talk about it. And they are powerless and therefore don't have a voice a lot of the time. So the journey ever since then, I've tried to tell the stories of what I've seen. I've made a lot of friends. And those friends are both Palestinian and Israeli, both Jewish and Palestinian Israeli as well. And the people that we've particularly linked with, and I mean Amos Trust, the trust that I founded, are those who are peacemakers, committed to nonviolence, and as we see them struggle for their dignity, I see this as a struggle to affirm the image of God in every human being. There's a battle for that. There's an interesting, there's a Jewish-Israeli charity called Betzalem. It's a human rights charity, and it's watching all that happens to the Palestinians. Betzalem means in the image. They've used that right from the start of the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, we share that at the start of our Old Testament. This is what it is. It's a battle for the value of every human being. And so my commitment was always from that word go, being that we should not be supporting the Palestinians in order so we go against the Israelis. What we're looking for is equalities. It's the old Martin Luther King, bring down the mountains of oppression so we stop the occupation, lift up those in the valleys who are forgotten and ignored. We are bringing people to the situation of equality. That's what the journey should be about. And I suppose since then, that's a story I've tried to tell again and again, actually. You certainly have. And I think it's true to say that uh, sometimes a criticism aimed at you is that you're in some way anti-Semitic or anti-Israel, when I think probably the exact opposite is the case. You're just as much for the Jews as you are for the Palestinians. You're for the people on both sides. You might be critiquing the leadership on both sides at different times, but you're very much for both Palestinian and Jewish people. I feel that very strongly. We cannot lift up one group and push another group down. At the moment, it's the Palestinians who are oppressed. There's no good turning that on its head and oppressing Israel. There has to be a journey that the world has to do, whereby both communities are affirmed. 
I have a Jewish friend called Ilsa Boaz who came over to this country with the kinder transport right in the, yeah. the 1940s. And we were doing an event together, and somebody said, could this be described, this attitude, as anti-Semitic? And Ilsa Boaz said, no, just understand there are three categories. There are the Jewish people, there's the state of Israel, and there's the policies of the current government of Israel. She said, we're only criticizing one thing, obviously not criticizing Jewish people, not the state of Israel per se, it's the policies of the current government. And I think of that often because, particularly at the moment, Netanyahu again and again and again has rejected peace. Palestinians have made very generous offers, rejected again and again. They're taking the land, they're stealing the land day after day. Why? If you want peace, share. And so I think one must speak the truth about what's going on. But one has to be committed to all who live in the Holy Land. This must be a place for all of them. I don't mind if it's one country, as long as, again, that's equality and everyone has the same uh, right to vote and democratic principles and so on. Or if it's two-state, in a sense, that's for the local people yeah. to work out. But there has to be justice and there has to be peace for right across. So when Israel says we want peace and security, so we're entitled to shoot Palestinians, I want to say, well, Palestinians want peace and security. And if we bring justice to the Palestinians, I believe that will bring a moment of peace and security for the Israelis too. And that this is what one should be working for and hoping for. I'm not very happy at the moment with the way President Trump is conducting the first stages of what he calls his, I think he calls it his great peace plan or something like that. Because he immediately took away one of the big hopes of the Palestinians was a shared Jerusalem. He symbolically tried to take that away. And now he's talking about removing the right of the Palestinians to be refugees. And he's taking away money from the United Nations Relief and Works Association, which is what is looking after the Palestinian refugees. So there's something going on here where there is commitment to one side, only the Israeli side. Well, you can't get to peace that way. Everyone is an equal human being, so the journey to peace is justice for all. And uh, I hope we see, I don't know how this will happen exactly at the moment, I hope we see some better political journeying, which uh, brings hope, long-term future of justice, and a system politically that is fair to all in that context. Uncertain footsteps on a pathway to peace Emerging through the pain of time Are there green shoots on the old olive tree? Is this your eye? Oh Palestine Oh Palestine Oh Palestine Slowly emerge Now it's your turn to shine is this your moment? Is this your time? Is this your hour? Oh, Palestine I've seen your children Behind the wire Hidden from view From the eyes of the world I've seen your homes Taken, destroyed Now is this your time? Oh, Palestine, oh, Palestine, oh, Palestine, slowly emerge, it's your turn to shine. Is this your moment? Is this your time? Is this your hour? Oh, Palestine. I think it's worth noting as well at this point that the Palestinians have often been very badly treated by people on all sides. I think any student of modern politics will tell you that the Palestinians are the runt of the Middle Eastern litter, that they've often been abused by other Arabs and often just used as an excuse to get at the Israelis. And really, amongst much of the Arab world, there's very little concern for the Palestinian people. Garth, you use that word justice. Do we believe in a just God? Is that the God of the Bible? Or are we barking up the wrong tree? 
That's a big question, and I think it's really important. I was in a discussion with some people on one occasion who disagree with my views on Palestine and on the Holy Land. And when I felt we'd probably gone as far as we could in the discussion, I, I said, well, look, look, you might not agree with me, but just rest assured in what we're doing, we only, we as Amos Trust, only work with those who are committed to nonviolence. And a woman turned to me and she said, then you don't work with God. And I was staggered. And a guy who was kind of coordinating this little meeting, he called it a day at that point. But I thought about it many times since, because there was a certain logic to what that woman was saying. Because if we look at the Old Testament and Hebrew Scriptures, we find people are saying, God has told us to kill people. God has told us to kill every animal and human being in this particular town. And I think we have to look very carefully at this, because there are two strands there in the Old Testament. There's a God who seems biased, God that seems violent at times, or is affirming violence. But then you start to hear amazing words from the prophets. This is not a God of violence, even in the Psalms. Not a God of violence. A God who is affirming the equality of all. And the strand that Jesus picks up is the strand of this God, the peacemaker. Jesus comes in as the Prince of Peace. So I think we must be very careful and remember and think about who wrote the Old Testament and why. The community who wrote it were trying to reflect various things. They were trying to tell the story of God in the midst of all those things and how they related to God. But the views of God, their understanding of God, was at that stage, I think, of a God who could be very angry and could condone violence and oppression. And then the Hebrew prophets start to tell us another story. And then it opens up to what Jesus is saying. And it's an unbelievable example of when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. He gives a piece of street theater. And he's saying, look, I'm riding not on a war horse. I haven't come in the same gate where the powerful empire comes in. That's the other side of the city. They'll come in with the war horses. They'll come in with their weapons. They may come in with hostages. This is the empire. This is the kingdom of God, this side. And we're coming in with non-violence, gentle, and riding on a donkey. It's an unbelievable story. And that opens us up to say, okay, who gives us the clearest picture of the character of God? Jesus does, and, and particularly in that parable. And so we now see a God of love, not of bias, but of love, generosity, and commitment to each human being. That's a very, very exciting gospel. That's hope for all. Garth, I might add that I can only see one example in the Old Testament of God actually saying, go in there and use violence. And that was with Joshua. And he was to go in to what became the promised land using violence. Jesus, when he came, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. This Jesus who you follow, is it costly following him? Let's face it, Garth, you've turned your back on pop success You've still gone on and released over 40 albums and you've played all over the world, but whilst doing so, told the truth as you see it. Following this Jesus, have you had to count the cost? Yes, there are times people disagree strongly, particularly on the Palestine issue. And one of the things for which I most admire the Christian record company that I was with most of my years, Word Records, and they went to Word Records and they said, chuck him off your label because of what he's saying about Palestine. They said, no, we won't. And I love them for that, that they recognize that he's saying this. Others on the label reflect different views, but we'll stand by him. And I remember talking at a conference, Christian conference, soon after I had first came back from my experience in Palestine and Israel. And a couple of people jumped up, grabbed the mic off me and um, started yelling at the audience and disagreeing with me. And the guy chairing the meeting was very confusing. He said, what's going on? I said, sorry, when they finish, you can just let me say a sentence, I will. I'm not going to make a meal of it or whatever. And that's what happened. And I'm glad to say that in later years, one of the people who came up to me and apologized. And I thought that was very moving. There can be anger, there can be misunderstanding. But that particular person came and said to me, I'm, I'm sorry about that. So there has been criticism you are not allowed to say certain things in certain places on this subject. I have often, for some years, done uh, Pause for Thought on the BBC on Radio 2. 
I put in a lovely story about a Jewish boat going to Gaza with people. There was a Holocaust survivor, someone who had had one of their children killed in a bomb blast. And they wanted to go into Gaza and express their sorrow and apologize for the current situation. And I felt this was such a symbol of love and care. Here was a Jewish group of people going into Gaza to say sorry and can we work together and so on. Well, they wouldn't let me. (laughs) That was banned. (laughs) I think it's wrong. I think there's a feeling you can't mention certain things. I was actually showing an example of peacemaking by some Jewish people who had suffered tremendously. They were people of hope in that context, people of hope who would be hugely respected when they came to Gaza. They weren't allowed to get to Gaza. They were stopped by the Israeli Navy. I felt if we don't have models of people who will break our being stuck in this conflict context, we don't know the ways forward. We need those prophetic people. So, yeah, there are certain aspects where you know you're not asked onto certain things because of what you're saying. You come under criticism and perhaps some things don't appear. You lose some opportunities. But you know, you get some amazing opportunities. Amazing. I've made friends with extraordinary people. People who are living beside this huge separation wall. You would think they must be people without any hope and yet here they are. It's a lovely place to be. In Bethlehem, for instance, which is surrounded by the wall. What a great community there. And so I've made friends there and in different parts of the world. It is the richest experience to have met with people. I've understood a lot more about the Christian gospel because of meeting with people who have suffered, who have been in those communities. I don't know why it should be. For so many of them, they're people of hope too. Now, don't let me romanticize it. It's not hopeful. It's very painful. But they haven't given up. And that's taught me a lot. So if there are any things one could say, well, you've missed out because of this, that and the other, or you've been criticized, yeah, but I've benefited extraordinarily. And I'm grateful. And the kindness of people to me in those circumstances. And I've been in one or two places. I have to laugh about it. One time I went to visit Yasser Arafat down in Gaza. I went in with a group of clergy. And we drive down to Gaza. When we come into Gaza, the police come along. They put on the blue flashing lights and take us down to the hotel where he is. So we meet him. And straight away then I'm told by the bishop, Garth, you must sing your song, O Palestine, for President Arafat. You know, what a privilege. People who have struggled to be acceptable as human beings. So I've had the joy to do things that are very unusual. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Oh, Palestine. Oh, Palestine, slowly emerging, it's your turn to shine. Is this your moment? Is this your time? Is this your hour? Oh, Palestine. I heard the bell ring out loud and clear over the hill from all around. For freedom to come, it could be your hour, oh Palestine, oh Palestine, oh Palestine, slowly emerge, it's your turn to shine. Is this your moment? Is this your time? Is this your hour, oh Palestine? Oh, Palestine, oh, Palestine, slowly emerge, now it's your turn to shine. Is this your moment? Is this your time? Is this your hour? Oh, Palestine, is this your hour? You're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online. My name is John Cheek, and it's been an absolute pleasure to interview the, the Christian recording artist, the Christian music legend, the performer and the founder of Amos Trust, Garth Hewitt. Garth, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. It's been a real pleasure. We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios Chatroom. Green Door!
We hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.